Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. That will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. We're going to start the topic with the affirmative action issue. But before we get started, I want to tell a personal story. First of all, I define myself as an Afro-Latino Caribbean man. I'm walking the streets of Houston. I'm just a black man. I went to the University of Texas back in the 80s. I must say I was very comfortable at the University of Texas, but I went through a lot of tribulations a lot of tribulations simply because of my hue, my color, my race, whatever you want to call it. I, by the way, I want folks to understand, I think race is a stupid thing because the reality is one's pigmentation has little to do with one's intellect, biology or anything else. Any scientist would tell you that. That's a fact. Now, our economic system depended on splitting people up, people being against each other. We, we could go through a lot of histories that right now is not germane to this particular discussion, but I'd like you to take at face value that particular statement that I said, race is a stupid thing. Race has no value. We have instituted race so that a few on top can stay powerful. We instituted race and a lot of the other isms for that particular reasons. Now, at the University of Texas, I got into many issues with professors, etc. The way papers were graded and all of that, that I could categorically, I'm not saying playing a race card or anything like that. I could categorically prove these issues were racially based. I, I had some great white friends at the University of Texas who stopped me many a times in my hot head days from getting into trouble because, again, meaning, you know, maybe confronting a teacher in the wrong, a professor in the wrong way, et cetera. These guys like Egberto, chill out. We understand. Look, we're with you. We understand. You know, just we've got your back. So let me just tell you on face value, those are issues that I went through. Now, when it comes to affirmative action, when I went to the University of Texas, the school was a very, very monolithically white school. I loved the school. The school is a great school, etc. But one of the things that really irked me many a times is that most of the white kids that were at that school believed that I was there because of this thing called affirmative action. So I was never looked at by most as somebody who earned the right to be at the top public university in Texas. I was always looked at as the affirmative hire, if you will, the affirmative student there. That plays a part on one's psyche if one's psyche isn't strong enough. It can have issues to believe, well, look, I do my work. I am smart. I am all these things. But still, the body generally thinks you're only there because some external force says that somebody with your hue, with your color, with your race needs to be there. As such, when I left the University of Texas, I hated affirmative action. This black dude, when he left the University of Texas, hated 
affirmative action. I got several offers for jobs when I left the University of Texas. And by the way, my scores at UT weren't exceptional because, of course, I worked 40 hours a week as I went to school as well. I never did homeworks in many classes. Homeworks was 25% of the class. I fudged it. But anyhow, I knew the material very well. I did very well comparatively. When I got into the workforce, this was my experience. I got a job in Louisiana, run trucks because of issues with my back. They told me, after all, we can't keep you on, but go to Houston and interview for this job. My first experience were twofold. The job that I interviewed for, from on paper, I was not qualified for. It was for a senior programmer analyst that while I did a lot of programming back in school, in fact, I wrote a program to control a, uh, a ship in the middle of the ocean in Fortran with the windage and, and waves and that sort of stuff. I didn't have the title master's in computer science. After I got that interview with this great, great woman who herself was fighting her way in the good old boy network in the oil industry. She heard the whole history. She asked the right question. She, she, she made sure that, oh my God, can you really do this job? And she was enthralled and, and she went to the VP of the organization and said, this is the guy that I want to do this job. It was for a, a system, a TDS-11, never forgot the name of the system, on a PDP-11 computer system. Anyhow, after feeling like I got the luck of the draw that this woman really thought that I could do this job and she wanted to hire me, my my second experience was going into the office of the VP of this particular organization, sitting down, him closing the door behind me, and it just felt weird. And he looked and he said, and I won't use her name, but he said, she likes you. She thinks you are going to excel at this job. I don't know why, but I want to tell you something, man to man, you got six months. And if you don't make it, I don't want to hear a damn thing about affirmative action. That was my entry into the workforce in the United States of America. A 22-year-old kid, and notice I said kid, green behind the ear, 22-year-old. That was my introduction to the system. Suffice it to say, it was a load. I am sitting down there and it wasn't like, welcome to the corporation. It wasn't welcome to a great company to do great things. Or it, That was not my entry into the company. So as you can imagine, I hated affirmative action even more because now I understood that I'm in that job and what it was going to mean to me as far as how my peers were going to look at me. That six-month project was completed in its full potential successfully in two months. The lady who said she saw that I could do the job walked into my office and said, let me tell you something. Forget all the crap this guy told you. You are here, brother. Well, she didn't say brother, but you know, she said you are here and moved on from there. But all the while, I always felt that pressure that everybody looking at me before they saw my work thought I was there solely for affirmative action. I hated it. I hated affirmative action. You know, we were young. We used to have all these great parties and there are times I was a bartender, even though I didn't drink, but we'd have these big parties and we'll get into big arguments about political issues and all of that. And I was the all, the one that they would always call a Republican. I was never associated with either Republicans or Democrats, but they would call me a Republican because I was, I had this anti-affirmative action thing on my shoulder because I hated that that is how I was going to be judged. So this guy, one time, uh, he was working for Channel 13 and it was a reporter for Channel 13. They had issues at 13 with minority reporters and that kind of stuff. And then he came to me and he said, uh, you are an idiot. You are a buffoon. And he, he, he ragged me and he said, I'm, I'm tell you what, whenever you change your mind, you give me a call. And I remember when I changed my mind, I, I, I don't I, I don't remember the exact flip point, but I remember thinking, oh my God, the reason I got into the University of Texas was in fact affirmative action. The reason I even got the job at that company was because of affirmative action. It's not that I couldn't do the job. It's not that I wasn't qualified for the job. It's not that I wasn't smart enough for the University of Texas and they made that choice to come and pick me up. But it was that 
affirmative action said, we cannot just because the managers and the educators or whatever are more comfortable with people who look like them, only consider people who look like them. And the second thing, in a pool of, let's say, white people where there will always be enough white people to qualify for any one job, there are white people who will keep another white person out of a job because there are only X amount of slots, just as a qualified black person would have kept a qualified white person out of a job. In other words, that white person that was qualified but wasn't chosen over that black person or that same white person could probably not have been chosen because of another white person. It's the thing about having X amount of slots and a hell of a lot of people going after that slots and affirmative action saying, look, in, in a system where it has always been biased against the other, we have to create structures that in that pool of qualified people, we can have diversity in this organization. It's a systemic issue, but in solving the systemic issue, you don't want to bring unqualified people in. Why do I make that distinction now? What many corporations have done is as they are doing their hires, and this goes for universities, I'm doing it from a perspective of corporations, but it goes with universities as well. As they are doing their hires, they don't necessarily seek that qualified person, that qualified BIPOC. And what does that do to that white person who was qualified for that job, but that BIPOC, that black person, that Latino person who was less qualified got the job. It creates an anti-affirmative action stance based on a lot of what my own experience was that that backlash thinking you are only there because of the color of your skin, because of your ethnicity, and not because you, like anybody else, deserve to be there. Every job that I've had before I went solo, and by the way, I only worked for corporate America for five years. I could take it no longer and form my own software company. The reason affirmative action gets that bad act is on purpose. It wasn't the affirmative action that was the issue. The issue was always those who are implementing affirmative action, not doing what the work. And many of the work that wasn't done had to do within with the intrinsic racism of the people who are doing the interview proper. Let me give an example. Many a times I would be qualified for a job, but because of racism of the person who is directing the job, they wouldn't want you for the for the problem as, well, since you know something, I there's I definitely don't want a BIPOC in here who is going to show me up as if that is not going to happen with a non-BIPOC showing this particular person up. And too often what that means is that the most qualified BIPOC, Black person, Latino person, Indigenous person, doesn't get selected because not of affirmative action, but because of that person's own misgivings, that person's own implicit racism, prejudice, or otherwise. And that screws the whole pot up. So now what we get is many white people wouldn't just come out and say, I hate affirmative action because I feel it discriminates against me. I mean, a lot of folks have been made to believe that, that that is what happens. They don't say that if it's a white person getting that job uh, that kicked them out of the job, because again, that's not the framing that those demagogues are going to use. The framing that real racist prejudice folks are going to do to get good people on their side, good white people on their side, good everybody on their side is to point out you lost your job because they gave it to some unqualified other. So when I find white folks that are against affirmative action, my first point of view isn't to say you're racist to believe that. It's to say there goes our efficient system that creates racist Again, the race is not a real thing, but my God, it has created real problems 
by design. A lot of folks don't like to hear me say that race is a stupid thing or whatever, because people have this great attachment to that stupid color thing. They have that great attachment to supremacy of the way you look, when in reality, there are very few people who are simply teaching you to think that way so that they can have full control with you fighting everything else, but fighting that which holds you down. It's not affirmative action that has hold people down. If you go into a university, there's this thing known as legacy enrollments. In other words, you get a push ahead. When I worked on the board of Move to a Man, we would create skits for people to do to show how people move along in life, the average person. And we'll line a completely multicultural group. And we will ask about 10 questions about their life situation and how things happened in their lives. And we would say things like, one step forward, if this happened in your life, where you're at, if this happened in your life, or take one step backwards if this happened in your life. And after we did that test, it was a graphical way to show how systemic racism, systemic prejudice has worked in this country. When the Supreme Court made that change, notice it had no effect on things like legacy enrollments. Legacy enrollment says if you were a part of this institution, your parents, that is, you will get an edge up on everybody else who's applying for that institution, right? So therefore, there are two things that legacy does, right? Legacy hurts the other white qualified people just like the other white qualified people think that getting a notch for being a BIPOC to get into that institution holds a pool of qualified white people out. It's another edge that you get up, right? But I have yet to see too many people complain about the legacy issue. But I will add one thing to the legacy issue. The legacy issue is also a racist issue. And how is the legacy issue racist? The University of Texas, my school, never allowed BIPOCs in there. Black people, Latinos, uh, other people of color could not go to the University of Texas. What that means is that the, the, the vast majority, if not all, of the legacy points, in other words, the, the advantage you get from being a legacy person, only applied to white people. So there you go, right? A legacy thing that right now the Supreme Court did nothing about, built into that legacy program, is implicit, systemic racism. Why? Because at the time these legacy programs came into the fold, black folks couldn't go to those universities. As such, what that meant, again, is within that structure proper, within the legacy structure proper, it is implicitly racist because all those points for legacy goes to one group of folk. The whole issue here is the Supreme Court's in adapting the fallacy about affirmative being a racist entity. In other words, discriminate, discriminating against white people, being uh, using race to get folks into the college makes absolutely no sense. And what it really does is what we see is happening in California. California, what occurred is they went completely race neutral. And what happened immediately is their black population fell by 44% their indigenous population fell by 90%. This wasn't a Supreme Court decision in California. It was the people of California after being miseducated by racists on what uh, these issues really are. So do I blame the average citizens of California? No, I don't. I blame ill education, miseducation. And why am I honored to be having a platform on a place like KPFT or on the internet or anywhere else? Because without any stresses, without any external forces, we can honestly have a discourse. We can honestly discuss what these issues really are and not how the, uh, the plutocracy, the corporatocracy would try to use it to create divisions among us. Second topic, it has to do with big pharma. And I, it, it irks me that this doesn't get more, more play. Uh, the, the title of the, 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 this particular, the title of this particular piece that, you know, that I drug out of common dreams last night was no surprise, big pharma sues Biden over effort to lower drug prices for Americans. 
And if you notice, remember last week I spoke about Merck and Merck suing the government. Well, that was not enough. You know, that wasn't enough. They want to cripple, they want to cripple the ability of your government, our government. They want to cripple it before it gets started because they are scared about that that stone rolling down the hill, that little snowball rolling down the hill and becoming pretty, pretty big, right? So it's no surprise that big pharmaceuticals vote them. Here it goes. It says, aiming to protect wealthy pharmaceutical companies from any reduction in their tens of billions of dollars in annual profits or lavish CEO compensation packages, the industry's biggest lobbying group on Wednesday announced a lawsuit against the Biden administration over its policy allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices for consumers. Part of the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, the Medicare negotiation provision has been a key demand of progressives, including Senator Bernie Sanders for several years, as the United States pays more per person for prescribed drugs than, they, than any other country. And nearly a third of Americans said in one survey last year that they have avoided taking medications due to costs. So if folks are taking medication, like not taking their medication due to costs, that means that a certain percentage of those folks will get sicker and yet another percentage of those will die. So therefore, I think there's a direct correlation between the pharmaceutical companies and unnecessary illness and unnecessary debts. Before I proceed with the article, ask yourself a question. They are suing the United States government for wanting to negotiate prices for drugs. Maybe it is time for us to have a class action lawsuit against the drug industry, against pharmaceutical companies under the premise that they are affecting the illnesses and murder of our citizens by their policies. You know, I am in several organizations, other organizations, and, you know, every so often these organizations get sued, right? Uh, these are these benevolent organizations, these nonprofit people have disagreements and they decide to sue each other or whatever. And I always say for the one who knows that they are in the right, you know, it is time to be aggressive and aggressive means immediately, immediately counter suing when you have things like this. I think we could create good grounds for suing a company who, who, is, who has developed products based on money you, the taxpayer, has paid to universities and, and the NIH and other departments uh, to develop these drugs. And after these drugs are developed, these companies try to charge you again exorbitant amounts, exorbitant amounts, to use these drugs, and because we, the people who've already paid for these drugs, can't afford it, we get sick, some of us die. I think it is time for us to sue those companies civilly and criminally. I mean, if we know death could occur, that could also, we could probably find a good lawyer who could say that is premeditated murder. Wishful thinking on my part, but you know what? Aggressive thinking, it's what we are going to need if we are going to bring some benevolency back into this society. But we can take that another time. Although, back to the article, although a Congressional Budget Office analysis found last year that allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices would save the U.S. nearly $290 billion in new revenue and savings over a decade, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America on Wednesday became the latest pro-industry group to sue over the provision, arguing the law is unconstitutional. Wow. Wow. It's unconstitutional. I want people to understand what this is saying here. They are saying 
it is unconstitutional for our government. We the people, it's unconstitutional, they're claiming, to negotiate for better prices for all of us who are paying the bill for these drugs, but not only that are paying the bill, that wants to pay the bill to get these drugs, but also paid the bill to develop these drugs. They're suing us. I mean, you know, I know a lot of you have heard the frog story. The frog story is that if you put a frog in water and you start put some heat into that water because, and you gradually heat that water, as that water is heated, because the, the change in temperature over time is so small, by the time that water starts to boil, that frog is so used to it that it dies being boiled because, again, the delta change was so little that it was imperceptible. Is that a true story or is that truly how it works? I don't, I, you know, from, you know, I, I, look, when I get into the shower and as I progressively get the water, uh, eventually it reaches a point that you want to. But again, you, you, you get the gist. The gist is that these guys have been doing wrong, delta wrongs for so long. In other words, I get a little bit worse every year. We, we, we take, we push it to the limit every time a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So much so that when we are at a maximal level of evil, like these drug companies are right now, when you reach that maximal level of evil, to you it doesn't even seem all that evil. That you are suing a government trying to make drugs affordable to people so that they don't die. Ultimately, that's what it is. So that they don't die, they're selling, they're, they're putting these products out. They're trying to negotiate the price of these products in which, of which these guys are saying, no, it is unconstitutional. And you mean, we didn't make, this didn't make big news yesterday or the day before, etc. on our news channels? It didn't make it didn't make that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, but anyhow, anyhow, here's the deal. Continuing with the article, because just reading it is frustrating. But Forma argued in a court filing in the Western District of Texas. I notice where they wanted to file that case, right? in the Western District of Texas, that the provision violates the constitutional requirement for checks and balances by placing too much authority in the hands of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the due process clause by denying drug companies input regarding pricing, and the Eighth Amendment ban on excessive fines due to the excise tax big pharma companies will be required to pay if they refuse to negotiate. All right, so the Biden administration is saying negotiate for the prices, and if you don't negotiate for these prices, there will be an excise tax, right? And why an excise tax? Well, of course there's an excise tax. I mean, uh, you, you know, we, we paid for these drugs. We paid to develop these drugs. So, you know, you don't negotiate, you know, again, we have the right to tax. So they're saying no, 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 no. You have, we don't, we want, we want the drug companies. We want, while you're negotiating prices, we want to have input in what those pricing conditions are going to be. Okay, really? I mean, the, 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 the idea, the idea that they are serious about this makes one wonder. Again, like I said, uh, the frog metaphor. Uh, <laughs> Holy City says you completely destroyed the boiling a frog metaphor. I don't, I, I don't know that I did. Maybe my words didn't come out as clean as they should. But the idea is the delta temperature is what makes the frog boil. I mean, uh, it's staying there to the boiling point, my friend. So I think that is accurate. All right. The Senate Finance Committee... Chairman Ron Wyden said it was no surprise 
that pharmaceutical companies want to stop the Medicare from saving millions of senior citizens out-of-pocket costs and warn that they'll likely be successful if a Republican candidate wins the presidency in 2024. I expect the Biden administration to vigorously defend Medicare's bargaining power so seniors will see the lower drug prices they expect, said Wyden. This legal action underscores how critical it is to have a president in the White House who will fight for lower uh, health costs for Americans. I have deep concerns that a Republican administration would roll out the red carpet for big pharma and once again ban Medicare from negotiating lower drug prices. Lower drug prices. Uh, Pharma was joined by the National Infusion Center Association and the Global Colon Cancer Association in legal challenge, which follows a lawsuit filed by drug maker Merck, right? Uh, earlier this month, which is the one that I, we spoke about a few weeks ago or a week ago. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Bristol Myers Squibb have also sued over the provision this month, with the latter claiming as Pharma did Wednesday that the law is bad for innovation. All right. The law is bad for innovation. I'm glad that they said that. Now the lawyers for the government can really go into where innovation actually comes from. When they say it's bad for innovation, what they're saying, brothers and sisters, is the following. If we are not allowed to charge you exorbitant prices for the drugs that we sell, we will not have innovation because we need all those profits to innovate. I, it, it amused me also that a part of that consortium suing the government is the Global Colon Cancer Association. Because anybody who watches TV... Anybody who watches TV every single day, whether it be uh, the, the broadcast or cable news, etc., you know there's this new colon drug, I mean, this new colon test on the market. You can go ahead and without a colonoscopy, now you can actually determine if you have uh, colon cancer by simply doing this in-home test, right? And every other, every half hour or so, this I'm not going to name the drug. On, I'm not going to name the test or anything here. But every every few minutes in between the breaks, you hear this colon advertising. Come on, where the hell is all that money to keep advertising a test? If you go to your doctor, your doctor should tell you, "Hey, you need this test. You need that test. You don't need for our the monies that we are going to pay for these tests and these drugs to be advertised on TV ad nauseum. We don't need to have these advertising over and over again because that is money that's you're paying for. Every single ad that you see on TV for medicine, every single ad on TV that you see for a test, when you hear them say, go uh, ask your doctor about this test, ask your doctor about this medication, those those ads cost tens of thousands of dollars to put on on ABC, CBS, MSNBC, and all of that. Every time they air, thousands of dollars to air that ad. And to pay for that ad, the expectation is more people are going to use that thing and that they're going to charge you that amount of m more money for the medicine, etc., as opposed to just letting the doctor know about the medicine and saying the doctor makes the best option for that. But now they want to use it as, a, as an excuse. Oh my God, it is going to, it is going to somehow charge you. It, 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 it is going to stop innovation if we do that, if we come and try to do that. So I want all of you to realize it's a sham. It is a complete sham, this drug issue, this drug suit that's going on right now, that they are going to sue you or that they're going to sue. Yeah, they're suing you. They're suing the government. We, the people, are getting sued by big pharma because they want to be able to exploit you. And when they talk about innovation, they need to make all this money so they can create newer drugs. 
They don't innovate. I repeat, I'm going to throw this back in a minute, but they don't innovate. The innovation comes, the genesis of innovation, the start of innovation in the, in the pharmaceutical field starts at your university and from grants that the NIH, the government institution, give to companies. And the reason why is companies do not take risks. Companies do not take risks. So please, my brothers and my sisters, this is a big story, bigger than the media is talking about. And the media doesn't want to talk about it because they love those Merck commercials. They love those colon, colonoscopy commercials, etc., etc., that you are paying for with those high prices. They spend more money. They spend more money on advertising, executive pay, and uh, and shareholder dividends and value than they do on research and development. So that is a lie right within there. And I hope the Biden administration actually calls them out on that with the proof that's out there for all of us to see that these drug companies spend their money on ads, spend their money on giving high, high, high salaries to executives, and spend their money on giving high returns to investors. Please. Please, this is a huge story. I want you to see this article from um, Common Dreams. I, I heard about it earlier today on maybe NPR or some other channel. I don't quite remember. But House GOP panel releases budget that would destroy Social Security as we know it. And here is the big part of this one. A panel comprised of three-quarters of the House Republican Caucus released a budget proposed on Wednesday that would raise the Social Security retirement age, cutting benefits across the board while further privatizing Medicare and slashing taxes for the rich, a plan that Democratic lawmakers and progressives advocacy groups that is a clear statement of the, demo, of the GOP's warped priorities ahead of a critical spending fight this fall. The proposal outlined by 175-member Republican Study Committee, RSC, led by Representative Kevin Hearns of Oklahoma, Republican of Oklahoma, would gradually raise Social Security full retirement age, the age at which people are eligible for full Social Security benefits to not 67, but 69 from the current level of 67 for those born in 1960 or later. The proposal outlined by 175-member Republican Study Committee, RSC, led by Representative Kevin... Oh, I read that one. Nancy Altman, the president of Social Security Works, said the RSC budget would destroy Social Security as we know it. Of course it would. Using a modest shortfall that's more than a decade away to justify reducing benefits for millions. In other words, those who were born in 1960, 1965, 1970, who paid under the premise that they will retire, they could early retire at 62 but get full benefits at 67, they changed the pact midstream. But that's not all. We should not be lowering Social Security. Let me read a little piece more, and then I will go into the part that I really need to speak about when it comes to Social Security. Anyhow, uh, these changes would transform Social Security from an earned insurance benefit, which replaces wages lost in the event of old age, disability, or death into a subsistence-level welfare benefit, said Altman who noted that the RSC rules out any option for raising revenue, such as requiring billionaires to contribute even a penny more. In other words, because these people definitely don't want any more taxes on wealthy people who have been pilfering the working class for decades, they're saying, well, look, we're going to keep the pot the same size. But as we keep the pot the same size in order to pay these things out, we have to make sure that people work more hours, longer hours, till they're older, till they're close to death. How many friends do you have die at 65? 
my great good friend died at 65. Another great friend died at 70. So he would have been able to recover one year of his, of his Social Security. But here is the deal. Fixing Social Security is simple. Tax all income, absolutely all income. Don't stop at a certain amount because the people, you know, they stop at what, 400000 I don't remember how many thousand dollars they stop at right now. And all the other people that make billions of dollars every year, they don't pay a penny into the Social Security Fund. Right? We are, the, the people who are trying to cripple Social Security are an evil sect. I want to warn everybody. Again, the panel that came out with that report. Given that as marching orders for Social Security and Medicare going forward, was comprised of 178 Republicans. Think about that. That's Republican orthodoxy. This paper must be held up by every progressive. This paper must be held up by every Democrat and go out there and say, America, you can see what your choices are. A society that takes care of humanity or a, a laissez-faire society who only rewards the wealthy. It is important. It is important. Because the wealthy, that they're wealthy doesn't mean that they have created anything. Remember, Donald Trump kids created nothing. Donald Trump created nothing. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And that makes them believe that they have earned the right not to pay taxes to make a country run that is responsible for the ability for them to have. The military, the, the huge military budget where they have many of their investments in as well, meaning they take tax dollars there as well, is there. That military budget is there to safeguard the wealthy. All the subsidies that we give to farmers ultimately reaches the hands of the wealthy. All the welfare that we give to those who cannot afford their own food, etc., ultimately ends up in the pockets of the wealthy. But they don't want to put any more in. They just want to keep extracting and extracting and extracting. And their stooges are the largest percentage of Republicans and neoliberal Democrats. I am not going to leave Democrats out of there because when Democrats were in power, they had the power to get rid of the filibuster and start doing what is right by the American people. And if the American people saw a, a party working for them, if the American people saw a party that said, we will not allow the wealthy to continue pilfering America, there is not another chance that another Republican and neoliberal Democrat would ever, ever win because the American people would see, my God, there is a government that is actually working to, be, to create an egalitarian society, a society that supports us all. It's not difficult. The solutions are there. But we have to decide if we want to support those who support the policy. But we also have to be able to articulate the policy. We have to be able to, in, to inform the American people so that they can understand how economics really work, unlike on, 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 on the lies that they hear on TV. We ought to be able to articulate this in very simple, simple terms. You, don't, you are working for the wealthy, but the wealthy cannot exist without you. They're, they have no existence without your labor, without your intellect, without your worth. It is important for us to understand that. It is important for us to know that. 
And when we finally accept our worth, our real worth, then we will take back that which really is ours. So again, take a look at the article. I, I, you know, I looked at it and I kept on saying, I can't believe, I can't believe these guys are unintelligent enough to release a report like this, to say what they really, really stand for, which is the pilfering of the working class. And of course, we're going to have some of the sycophants out there that somehow continue to find a way to support these guys. Kathy Pascal, how are you doing, my beautiful lady? They're hoping you will die. Ask people in their late 60s what it's like to physically work. I was a nurse for 37 years in my 50s. It was getting very hard. I wore back braces, uh, elastic stockings, and running shawl. Uh, my body hurt. My beautiful lady. Of course your body hurt. We weren't designed to be working this way. We weren't designed to be antiseptic slaves throughout our existence. Thank you for that testimony, Kathy Pascal. That's an important testimony for those who want people to work up until 69. Our efficiency, the, the productivity rate, Kathy Pascal, has gone through the roof. Michael Rudnan showed, uh, gave us a, a report yesterday, I wish I had saved the image, that showed our wages stagnating as our productivity increased like a rocket. That should have meant, with that increase in productivity, that we could retire earlier. We should set a retirement age of 55. We should have people retiring at 55. With full social security benefits. Give the young people a chance to enter the workforce and, and take over those jobs that too many old people have. Have the old people do kind of the things that we're doing here. Promoting intelligence across the internet. Doing things that, you know, taking care of our grandkids. Having times in the park. Let's use our, while we still have a good life, while we still have physically a good life, to also have a mental good life. Our productivity dictates it. And guess what else will dictate it? AR, I mean AI. People are scared of AI. If we regulate AI and we put AI to work for us, we can have that 20-hour week or we can have that 40-hour week for just a few while people retire at 50 years old. And we can have a humanity that really exists to work in your youth. I mean, if you're old and want to continue working, fine. Like somebody like me, I will continue doing this. I will continue writing, blogging, writing books. I will, I will never stop unless I'm physically impaired, mentally impaired. But for the vast majority of Americans, there's no wrong in saying, I want to do other things things right and and again our productivity dictates or makes that a possibility folks our technology makes that a possibility but when you have an economic system that rewards the spoils to the rich in other words we created this technology all of us compositely we created this technology we should Bear the fruits of the technology. We should be able to stand up and say, look, we can live an easy life after 50 or 55. As technology makes human work less necessary. Let's remember that. I want you guys to understand. Let's not continue to allow these guys to rip us off. Many Democrats think that because, you know, Texas is a majority Latino state right now. Many Democrats believe that anytime you have Latinos in power, you know, in, in the majority, whenever you have minorities in, in, that make up a plurality or a majority, that somehow that, is, it, that means they are likely to get the vote. They could not be more wrong. And I can tell you this, not from reading books or reading articles, 
during the canvassing time during elections, I do canvass in Latino areas. For Bernie Sanders, I canvassed in Las Vegas in Latino communities at Latino grocery stores, etc. In uh, during the last election, I, I went into um, I don't remember what ward here in Houston to go ahead and do that. Bridge MCP, thank you so kindly for your ta- for your support. She says, I may not agree with all right people say, but I would would stop in the rain, uh, I, but I would stop in the rain to change a flat for them. I believe they're good people, as I hope they will about me. And you know what? Yes. The answer is yes. I've been to all kinds of uh, areas where people eventually knew that I am this liber, this progressive dude, and we still break bread together. My, 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 uh, my Starbucks, they all know who I am, and we break bread together. So continuing with the, with the notion of Latino votes. Thank you very much, Bridge MCP. Continuing with the issue with the Latino vote. The Latino vote does not belong to Democrats. The black vote does not belong to Democrats. You have to earn the vote. Irrespective, if you want people to vote for you, Earn the vote. Don't listen to those ivory tower guys in Washington who are telling you demographics is the answer and why these are the way to do things. And you know what? Today, uh, MSNBC had a, an analyst, a, a Latino analyst, who knows exactly the reality of what we're talking about here. I want you to listen to this, and then we'll take it on the other side. Analysts say Democrats need to do even more if they want to win the 2024 election. The Cook Political Report highlights a study that analyzes Latino voter trends in key battleground states. Amy Walter writes, quote, it paints a worrisome picture for Democrats who may be hoping that increased Latino turnout in 2024 will cement their gains in key battleground states. For years, the working assumption among many campaign professionals was that Latino voters stayed home in midterm elections, but showed up in presidential elections. As such, a district or county with a significant Latino population would perform much better for Democrats in a presidential year than a midterm. But Republican candidates can make significant inroads with these voters, especially if they put a full court persuasion press on them while Democrats only engage these voters at the very end of the campaign. Joining us now, communications director of the Libre Initiative, a national advocacy group for Latino Americans, Wadi Gaitan. Thank you so much for being on. So what is the state of Latino support for Democrats? Are, are, are Democrats losing Latino voters? Uh, yes, they definitely are. I mean, the reality is I think many Democrats thought that that uh, voting demographic was baked in in their favor. And what we're seeing is actually that more Latinos are actually identifying as independent, as a swing voters. They're really willing to hear from both parties. Uh, it's important for Democrats to understand that this is a loss in the sense that before they could sort of count at these voters and these universities as sort of a get out the vote uh, demographic that yeah. towards the end of the election, they could just make that call and they would show up. But the reality is that is not the case. They're going to have to court the vote and they're going to have to work hard for it. So sort of give me a snapshot of the mindset here of uh, the Latino voters who are um, deciding that they're going to be independents or may not vote Democrat. In that mindset, what are the issues that are drawing them away from the Democratic Party? Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a couple of issues. But one thing, when, when, you, when you talk to Latinos across the country, when you look at the polls, one of the biggest things is the economy. Inflation specifically has created a barrier towards the American dreams for Latinos. The American dream is more expensive mm-hmm. for them. So they want to hear what are the policies, what has the president done, and what is he going to promise to actually do when it comes to the topic of uh, the economy? Uh, a lot of the polls also show that, in, in general, Latinos view 
uh, their trust towards Democrats as being the party that can actually deliver on the economy, that can deliver on issues like crime and like public safety is lower than the trust that they have uh, for Democrats. That doesn't mean that Republicans don't have barriers on their end, but these are also the barriers uh, that Democrats are facing when it comes to courting that issue. Also, when it comes to immigration, Democrats have made the right promises, but have not been able to deliver on those, process, on those promises for various reasons. But Latinos now view this topic as not necessarily the party uh, that is going to be able to deliver. So they're not just looking for the promises. They're looking for results on the topic of immigration. So, Wadi, obviously the Latino vote, not monolithic, uh, different people, whether they're country of origin or where they live in the United States changes your viewpoints. But let's just focus on one state in particular real quick. It's Florida, which yeah. has trended away from Democrats uh, in recent cycles. This idea that the anti-socialism argument the Republicans are putting forth has been successful. Do you see anything that could push Florida back towards the blue column? Or do you think it's pretty safely red right now? I think it's safely red, but Republicans have made a lot of work in that area. So if Democrats genuinely want to win over Hispanics across Florida, they're going to have to have a strategic targeted approach. Right now, you're talking about uh, that there's the distinct backgrounds, right? Uh, Orlando specifically, the amount of Puerto Ricans who have moved there in the last four to five years from the island, even individuals from areas from New York who have moved to Orlando have to understand that this demographic is completely different than the Cuban population, Venezuelan and Colombian, uh, in Miami, also in areas of South Florida, there is a growing Mexican population in the areas like Homestead. So not only is it coming to these groups, showing up early, but it's making the specific case of why these different groups uh, should vote for them. Something that the Democrats really have to do is go beyond, again, that traditional uh, four-year voter that only votes in presidential races. Uh, there's approximately a million Latinos uh, who are, are, are turning 18 every year. That's projected to be for the next 15 years. Th- these are U.S.-born Latinos. These are people who can register to vote. The case has to be made to them early on why. These folks aren't necessarily registering, again, as Democrat or Republican. Their party uh, affiliation isn't their identity. They're going as independent. The case has to be made. And Florida is very unique because Republicans have made uh, a lot of uh, headway and they've had the results to show for it. Okay. uh, So as it turns out, it is imperative if Democrats want the Latino vote, that they work for it, get out of the ivory towers. Who makes you believe you know what the Latino vote is all about? Most of the times, they don't. Another thing here, Carl Cox nails it. When Carl Cox says, Democrats in ivory tower will lose again and again if they continue to ignore both minority voters and progressive voters. Breed says, Egberto, how come they constantly uh, speak of the issue yet do nothing? Because, again, it's easy to talk about something. It's hard to go into the community and work the community. When we went out there canvassing the community, people were, uh, as you know, I I did most of the Spanish speaking in, in these communities. And what you found is that people were, first of all, apprehensive. They didn't want to get into the into the um into the electoral system because again they were they were distressed they they felt alienated and also they were scared they you know most families a lot of latino families in some of these poorer areas are mixed families meaning half of them or some of them are 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 are, are american citizens some of them are green card holders and some of them are undocumented right it's a it's a it's a combination thereof and you know the, then then there's another thing about uh, latinos as well Latinos uh, uh, suffer the same disease that many minorities have in in attempting to move up forward. They look at, some get ahead and they look at those behind them as a problem because they hate that people are viewing them through the eyes of the new immigrants. it's It's a very complex dynamic. In fact, I have a, I speak to a lot of folks that I go around the, 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 my town and I talked to some of the guys that are cutting the grass or whatever. And one of the guys who had a crew, but he was undocumented, he looked at me and he said, you know something, Egberto? Um, I, I, you know, you actually stopped by and talked to us and, and all of that as we were speaking in Spanish. He said, the truth of the matter is the people that, that hurts us the most are some of our own Latinos who, number one. So, I mean, there, there's a message from Brother uh, the Duck that quacks that says, You mean Latinos support cages for their relatives? No, they don't support cages for their relatives, but they don't mind the relatives of others in cages. Many times that's what you find. 
and uh, uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a very complex dynamic that is self hate, not wanting to be judged by the lesser of you, meaning the ones who have just got here or the ones who are not yet fully successful. The dynamics is amazing, and the Republicans, as usual, know exactly how to expand or uh, extort that, not extort, um, exploit that dynamic. But it, it goes a bit further. When you go to Spanish AM radio or, or Spanish radio, there's a lot of lies that you'd hear from the right wing on these radio stations. And I would be listening to it, and I'm like, how comes our Democratic Latino uh, Latino folks who understand what's going on on this radio aren't in their communities a lot making mention of all this stuff. They don't. They're not doing the footwork. Texas would be a blue state if folks did the footwork. If folks did the footwork, we'll be a democratic state. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.